welcome to the Crazy Bird podcast. I'm your host, Violeta Kaminska. I'm here with my co-host, Matt Van Rijs. And we have a very special guest today, Sophie Cunningham. Hello, Sophie. How are you? I'm good. Sophie Cunningham is the author of six books, Tippy and Jellybean, a picture book for children, City of Trees, Geography, Bird, Melbourne, and Warning, the Story of Cyclone Tracy. She's a former publisher and editor and is now an adjunct professor at RMIT University's Nonfiction Lab. In 2019, Sophie Cunningham was made a member of the Order of Australia, AM, for her contributions to literature. It's a great pleasure to have you here, Sophie. Oh, it's it's a very nice way to start the day here in, in Melbourne, where I'm coming to you from lockdown. We're in stage four lockdown, which means we can we have curfews and we're allowed out an hour a day. And the reason I'm my hair is wet and I've got my coffee is because I've just had my hour. I took an hour from six thirty to seven thirty this morning to get out of the house. And we were allowed to go shopping. I mean, it's not quite as you know so strict. I, it's not like I get arrested at the moment I step out of the house, but I try. We try and vaguely stick to those rules. Hey, so it is eight a.m. of your time. Selfie right now and yeah. it's 6 p.m. and we are behind you so you are in the future yeah. what does the future look I'm like I'm in the future the future's not great I have to oh say. really oh geez <laughs> I was hoping that you will tell us that it's actually bright okay well it's yes well I feel brighter in a couple of weeks when we're allowed okay. out well so maybe let's talk about the past a little bit you yes. know Good. they seem to be connected the future and the past and it seems right now the past was actually brighter. So, um, yes. And it seems like we lived in San Francisco around the same time, like 2015, I think, right? You were there in San Francisco? Yeah, 15, 16. And yeah. I was there too. And I was thinking about um, those years and about what I was doing in San Francisco around that time. And I remember that I was spending a lot of time walking when I was not working and spending a lot of time outdoors. And one of my favorite places in San Francisco was Chrissy Field. And that was the place yeah. where I walked and I came across a great blue heron one time. And then my journey started and I started filming and photographing the bird. And I was really, I became really interested in the idea of slowing down and pausing. And so I used to walk, Chrissy Field was my place of walks, meditations, reflections, and observing the bird. And usually I ended the walk in the San Francisco um, Harbor, uh, listening to the water concert. And that was the, I was the wave organ that I would always listen to and admire on the tip of the harbor on the jetty. And I always got this wonderful view of Alcatraz because it's facing Alcatraz. And on many occasions, I admired great, a great blue heron or an egret, either flying towards Alcatraz or flying back. And I always wondered, or had a little story in my head, I wondered if the bird lives there or lives maybe in the harbor. And it's, I was always curious about it, but I didn't really investigate that. And then I learned about your work and an essay you actually wrote. And I thought it was a one, I, I thought it was really wonderful. Um, I thought that you were there at Alcatraz around the same time, possibly I was staring at Alcatraz and admiring the bird. Maybe you were admiring from the other side, but yes, you know, there's more to it. There's this wonderful story. And would you be so kind and share it with us? 
Yes, I will. I was, um, to give it some context, I was, I probably say this in the essay, but I was a um, volunteer at Alcatraz, which meant I, I went across every Wednesday morning, caught the ferry early, and um, it was sort of the highlight of my time. As much as I love San Francisco, Alcatraz was um, the real highlight. Okay. So will I just leap in and, and read you some from some of my essay, which is called Escape to Alcatraz, which is from City of Tree. Wonderful. Okay. During the time I gardened there, I returned to Melbourne to see Dad, and during that time I gave a talk to a group of primary school students in Clifton Hill about spending time at Alcatraz. I told them that the island sat inside San Francisco Bay that it was a forbidding rock that rose high out of the sea, capped off by an imposing cell house and a lighthouse, that nine hectares of rock had come to mean a lot of things to a lot of people. I told them that the gardens were originally developed and tended by the military in the late 1800s, and I told them about Elliot Michener, the counterfeiter-turned-gardener, who planted the spectacular succulent gardens on the western side of the islands in the 1940s. He had no horticultural background, but he studied books and poured over poured over the seed catalogues that guards gave him. Michener ended up working in the home and gardens of the warden, Edwin Swope. Mrs Swope, also a gardener, used to lay bets on horse races on Michener's behalf. When he was transferred to another prison, he was not happy. I believe that the, my best and only practical course is to get back to Alcatraz, where I can at least grow bell roses and delphiniums seven, seven days a week and enjoy considerable freedom and trust and in general make the best of things. So, fast forward a few decades. One day, I shuffled slowly down the steep western slope in the cold, bright autumn sun, helping replant the Persian carpet as it's known. It was first planted in the 1920s, and the carpet is formed from ice plants which are matted together. It was these plants that first enticed Michener as he was retrieving softballs outside the recreation yard fence. He requested permission to start tending the ice plants the balls landed on and transformed the hillside into a wall of flowers that helped hold back erosion while blooming pink and purple for months of the year. They're known as survivor plants. Survivor means all kinds of things, but in the context of the gardens of Alcatraz, it's a reference to the 200 or so plant species on the island that grew there through the 40-year hiatus and care between the closure of the gardens in 1963 and the arrival of the gardeners. A 90-year-old fuchsia down by the Sally Port is one such survivor, the Persian carpet another. Being a survivor outside Alcatraz has less cachet, and elsewhere the ice plant's been rebranded as invasive, which means that work gangs rip ice plants out by the handful along coast roads. The plant was originally brought in from South Africa in the early 1900s, and it stabilised the soil. On Alcatraz, though, every plant was an invader and a survivor. I never talked to the school kids about reputed hauntings, so they would have enjoyed a ghost story. No tourist, child or adult ever came out of the, the hole, a pitch-black soundproof cell where troublesome prisoners were kept for up to 19 days without a look of horror on their faces. But for the most, things, for the most part, things were pretty jolly on the rock when I was out there. One of the rangers had an impressive voice. She greeted tourists by singing Alcatraz facts to the tune of Adele's Rolling in the Deep. A couple of times a week, a former prisoner named Bill Baker spruiked his memoir. He was in his 80s and spent more, had spent more than half his life in prison, four years of it in Alcatraz, and he'd done, as he told us, some bad things. He got married during the time I worked there in the particularly beautiful garden known as Officers Row. 
Eloy Martinez, a member of the occupying tribe of all nations who once lived in the cell overlooking the island's dock with his wife and son, now comes across from Oakland to give tours of the occupation sites across the island. Just to interrupt my reading, the um, island was um, for 18 months was um, occupied by um, the tri tribe of all nations um, in the early 1700s, um, early 1970s. What the student I spoke to had got wind of was the story of the escape attempt of 1962 during which Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers left paper mache heads on the pillows of their beds, squeezed into ventilation ducts through openings they dug with, dug with modified spoons and slipped off the island on a raft made of raincoats never to be seen again, unless you count the fictional version of them in Escape from Alcatraz. My audience listened patiently as I went on about geography and gardening, then their teachers told them they could ask questions. One little boy politely put up his hand. How do you make paper mache heads, he said. Loans, <laughs> I told them. Fill them up with air and slather them with newspaper and glue. Use hair stripped off the floor of your local barber. <laughs> a few days later, I passed, a few weeks later, I passed the message, I was passed the message back to those um, escape enthusiasts that one of the gardeners had taken a video of a great white, white shark not far from the landing dock. It was a day I wasn't on duty. The shark leapt out and grabbed a seal just as all the tourists were boarding the ferry. There was a lot of blood. Believe me, I said to the kids, those guys did not get away. They ignored me. After my talk, they drew treasure maps and they researched a variety of escape possibilities. Their teachers sent me pictures of their sent me pictures in case they might come in handy one day. One and a half million visitors head out to Alcatraz each year, keen to hear about the gun battles, the escape attempts, 36 prisoners and 14 attempts, 23 caught alive, six killed, two drowned and five, including Morris and the Anglin brothers, listed as missing because he drowned. Stories about Al Capone and the burden of Alcatraz are standard fare. And in case you didn't also know this, I have to break it to you. The Birdman was no Burt Lancaster. He was an extremely violent man who happened to know about canaries, but he wasn't allowed to keep the birds when he was on Alcatraz. So I worked on the island through 2015 into 2016. I worked on salvaging, the work on salvaging the gardens began back in 2003. Trees and flowers are still found under ivy so thick that it literally holds up fences and buildings. It's so old that it stems are the size of tree trunks. On cold, sunny on a cold sunny day, I was on the rocky banks on the east side, attempting to pull out ivy that hadn't been touched since 1963, before I realised that if I succeeded in getting rid of it all, I'd have nothing left to stand on. Some of the banks of the island are unpredictable, not solid rock, but piles of the rubble of formal buildings. And that is how I, I, I realised you end up with ruins being discovered metres below street level. No Roman Empire. Alcatraz was nonetheless the stuff of legend. We planted survivor irises, long gnarled rhizomes more than 40, year old, 40 years old and soil hardened by the long Californian drought. In truth, though it's always been dry out on Alcatraz and the garden had always been planted with species tough enough to cope with that water. In the 1930s, after the island was handed over to the federal government by the military, the Morden Secretary Fred Reichel asked the California Horticultural Society to suggest, suggest seedlings that would do well on the island. And species that came were imported came from the Mediterranean. 15 rose species survived the, lock, the island being shut down, including the French Bardot job rose, a Welsh rose that hadn't been seen in Wales for over 100 years. There are gnarly old figs. There are agave that stand four metres tall and artichokes that flower violent, 
purple, heavy with pollen, bees and hummingbirds. The hummingbirds dip and buzz in a series of straight lines, up, down, left, right. One day a tiny brown one, I suppose it could be described as plain, pivoted so as to display its throat and reveal a streak of fuchsia pink of startling intensity. It was perfect. And then it was gone. When he was in his 80s, Elliot Michener wrote, the hillside provided a refuge from the disturbances of the prison, the worker release, and it became an obsession, the one thing I could do well. And when I worked, I thought of the western side of the island as Michener's side, the windier side, the side where the succulents grow. I found that side more beautiful, by which I mean wilder. Over time, some of the women I worked with came to refer to one particularly steep slope as Sophie's Slope, and I'm hard-pressed to think of an accolade that's made me happier. I removed the axalis that grew over and strangled the aloe vera, lying on my stomach at an angle of 35 degrees, trying to maintain purchase without destroying the plants. It was spiky work from which I would return home covered in scrapes and cuts. The slope looked much better over the months I worked on it, but my friend Janice kept reminding me that the axalis would just come back, and she was right, it always did. But there was something about freeing the spiky invasive plants, avoiding the aggressive Pacific gulls who were nesting, listening to the clank of the buoys, the grunts of the seals, the sound of the foghorns that filled me with joy. If I paused in my task, I could sit and watch the fog snake under the bridge and across the bay. The container ships cut a sway through the water. And I knew, because I'd seen them when standing on the mainland, that whales were feeding on scores of anchovies. When I'd had enough of that job, I'd move around to one of Michener's succulent gardens where 99-year-old anemian, so I, 90, 90-year-old succulents had raised the land a metre in the decade since they were planted. I pulled on the ivy, following it to its source, attempting to destroy it, but knowing in my heart there was no beating it and that that wasn't the point. And after each visit, as I headed for the ferry, I'd pat my fellow Australian, the survivor tea tree that had scraped itself pretty long fingers along the ground. Before the gardeners and the Native American acts of placemaking, before it was a prison, Alcatraz was home to the seabirds. With the exception of the pelicans after which the island is named, birds have returned in their thousands. Snowy egrets, cormorants and night heron jostle, jostle for space beside the aggressive Western Pacific gulls. The gulls have built nests all over the island, though the prison's ruin the prison's in ruins and stand, they stand guard around its perimeter. The birds that gardens the Native American occupation, all these seem essential to understanding of what, what the rock has become and the effect it can have on people. My volunteering stint took, took place over two bird breeding seasons, which took place around the, every April and into May. I'd walk down to the snowy egret colony, I'd photograph them, I'd sketch them, I'd listen to them. They're impossibly elegant birds with long trailing feathers more delicate than lace work. But hilariously, they make up a sound that's not unlike a cat vomiting up a hairball. The bait, they still go, that's a little bit ad living there. The babies are round and fluffy with red feet, then turn yellow as they get older. The demand for their extravagant plumes as decoration for women's hats almost drove them to extinction. After the introduction of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act in 1916, the population did begin to recover. Snowy egrets never used to breed on Alcatraz, but now they nest in brambles so thick it keeps everyone other than the old Pacific gull away. When I saw them, there was always a mother front and centre. Indeed, when I was back, 
when I went back through my photos and paintings, I realised I'd photographed her time and time again over the 15 or so months I was there without recognising that she was the same bird, that she recognised me. On my last day on the island, after the morning tea, which I served Anzac biscuits and applauded, I went and found her a final time. She lifted her wings so they reached out to their full extent and held them up high, wingtips coming almost together. She showed me her bones, her feathers, her wings. San Francisco, sitting not far away across the water, framed her. I'm not sure if it was the constancy of my attention, the repetition of my appearance that led her to display herself to me in this way. Perhaps I was just lucky. Okay. Thank you. It's beautiful. And I almost want to say, and I probably that's probably not the right response to, especially um, to the writer who's reading right here an essay, but I want to say, I don't think you were lucky, Sophie. I think, you know, it comes from a bird. Well, you would know why later. <laughs> yeah, I think it, there's more to that than lucky. So I don't believe in that anymore, you know? I think they really recognize. Yes. I, I know sometimes we don't want our ego to like, get too big, so we want to think but that maybe it was a coincidence or maybe we were lucky. But I, I do believe that we it's actually scientifically proven that a lot of birds have a mem good memory and they can recognize people. This is coming up in Melbourne at the moment during the pandemic because mag magpies, which are birds with a really beautiful song, they're a bit like crows but um, black and white. Um, they sweep people when their babies are, you know, when it's um, breeding season. But they don't um, sweep people they know. But they've started sweeping all people because we, we it's compulsory to wear masks here and they're not recognising <gasps> people. So even people that have been feeding families of magpies that come back year after year are getting swooped and they were trying to work out why they weren't being treated with the same love and attention as they usually were. But it's because the, the, the face memory is so affected by the masks. So there is a solution to it. There are Now there are different masks. It must be the see-through masks so the birds can see it. That's probably what it is. Almost the maybe, but it's dangerous because yeah. it, it might be dangerous for the birds if it's like hits the plastic, but maybe it's just the fabric or material that is see-through. A magpie beak could handle a bit of plastic. much damage. <laughs> so, you know, you read the essay and I thought for some reason, especially today, I, I don't think it's just some reason. It's that, you know, lockdown on your end and here in the US also, we have, the whole world is dealing with them with COVID-19 situation. And uh, we are really limited to where we can go. We are really we are really stuck in our homes. And um, so I feel, you know, you you told us about Alcatraz and I thought it was really compelling. I thought of the space and place, how sometimes, you know, I don't think an average person, a tourist, or even when I went to Alcatraz first time, gardening or plants were really not my focus. I mean, they were there, yeah. but I didn't think that there was actually so much involvement in gardening. No, well, I... I actually went to, I mean, I've been a few times over the years as a tourist and been to the prison and things and, and found that interesting but didn't think at all about but nature on the island or anything. And then I went to um, an IYY uh, exhibition who's a um, significant Chinese artist and it was an amazing exhibition and I did actually, there are a whole lot of signs to the, the gardens and I went and looked at the gardens and I realised I hadn't seen them before. And that was partly because, in fact, it was only 2003 
that they started, you know, weeding and, and trying to work out what one of the gardens was left. That they're relatively recent, and I think I'd been to Alcatraz in the 90s when I was younger and spending time in the States. So the gardens were, from my point of view, new. But actually what I did was I tried to get a, uh, become a volunteer for, to um, look after or to watch the eggs of particular birds, like a bird volunteer, but all those jobs were full. But they there was space for gardeners. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll give it a shot. Um, and I'm so pleased I did because there's something about going to a place time and time again that even if from the outside it seems hostile and difficult in some ways or not particularly appealing, the beauty of it really um, really grew on me and it was partly the birds, it was partly the sounds that I described and being able to watch the bay, the movement of the water. I didn't. I cut the essay down a bit because it's quite long but you could also see the currents moving through the bay like these kind of amazing lines through the water and the ferry trip to the island itself was a part of the whole experience. Um, it was a beautiful thing every every Wednesday to be able to sit on the ferry just for 15, 20 minutes. And I think, especially in my art practice, that's I really strongly relate to that, to the fact that when we go somewhere, when we go to a place one time, or maybe two, three times, and then the more we go, it still can seem like the same place. But to me because I started paying so much attention, the place changes. Suddenly I start noticing, think about the place, but there's more than physical noticing. It happened yeah. to me with Chrissy Field. I, I became curious. Yeah. And that's usually when I keep going back to a place, I start, I become curious. I want to know more about the place. And then, you know. Yes, yeah, the history right. of the place sort of gets you. Yes, in. and yeah. you know, Chrissy Field is a fascinating place too. And it, well, it's right close to the, Al to the Alcatraz, but it's also the place that was restored. It was, um, you know, there were 100,000 plants uh, planted. It was an airfield originally, yes, is that it was right? An and there was so much, uh, it was really polluted. So there were like hundreds of thousands of barrels of materials that were radioactive that had to be removed from that area. And that area was oh, wow. not, it was not a recreation area. And uh, there were no birds at that time because everything was just the, the environment was really destroyed. And then I think it was like um, in 1994, National Park Service took it over. And it's and I thought about it it's similar to Alcatraz. Suddenly, hundred thousand first the area uh, the area was cleared and cleaned, and then hundred thousand plants were planted. And I think it was like seventy three uh, different kinds of. Uh, species of native plants were planted at that time and then the city decided to it was you know the whole intent was to make this um a recreational area so i also i, I think it's really fascinating from the place that was so polluted and destroyed yeah one of the things i found interesting about alcatraz though was that there were no there were almost no native plants you could return to Alcatraz because plants had originally not really grown on there other than a few extremely tough plants. Um, and it, people had never lived there um, pre-white um, Spanish settlement. Um, Native Americans had used, used it as a prison, actually. They'd seen it as similarly hostile. They'd occasionally, if someone broke laws i think they kind of dumped them on the island and they were left to kind of fend for themselves but it was not a 
it was never seen as a, pla a place of nature so much as a place of kind of um, rock and punishment. But um, slowly topsoil was, I think they took a lot of topsoil from Angel Island to build it up so they could start building the prison and then they started using that for garden beds. And they also, the, the garden, the islands actually been made bigger as well. Like the, it's sort of, there's more of it. So I think they've used rubble and various other things to kind of build it. Um, in, into the bay. So it's sort of all the construction and the fact that the pl every plant, almost every plant on it is an invasive species and all the invasive species have had to kind of come to some agreement. Um, <laughs> the, the agreement basically seems to be ivy, ivy and, and succulents rule and a lot of the other ones are kind of just sort of hide, hide in the cracks. But I found that very interesting when I was in San Francisco because of all these debates about migration and the word invasive is used with such um, such a loaded word um, and they actually talked about the, the language of the migration debate and the language about these plants being invasive was actually quite was quite similar but almost everyone is a, from someone else in San Francisco like I met so few people who weren't who were native to San Francisco um, and the few people I did meet um, were were, were um, retired school teachers who were gardening on the island or um, school teachers or academics and so that's when I did meet some people but most people like you and me while later were from somewhere else I mean I come from Melbourne which is also a city that has um, most people are from somewhere else and um, so People would all be be horrified by plants being from somewhere else, but they were happily from somewhere. But else. it's like birds, <laughs> you know. When you go to Christiefield, there are so many birds, and they were not there thirty yeah. years ago. They just decided, yeah. you know, to make it their home. And there's this migration. Well, the thing about egrets, yeah, egrets didn't used to be on the island, and Alcatraz actually. I, I'm going to garble this. It's over truncates it so it won't but I think the word actually means something like pelican it was actually an island covered in pelicans and the pelicans are no longer on Alcatraz because yeah. I think all the changes it's not actually suitable for them but other other birds that didn't used to um, breed there or spend time there now now use it so the fact it's such it's a sort of a re it's a built environment that works for some birds and not others I remember one time walking um, Christie Field and spotting white pelicans first time ever in my life and i thought i had yeah. never seen a white pelican in chrissy field that's what we get in australia See? i've never seen the little brown oh, ones okay until but i, I was like i was place. mesmerized you know the, the like three strangers among great blue herons and other creatures that i saw normally there suddenly there was white pelicans and i thought this is so amazing yes. they just landed there and that's how it is it, they're huge they're huge <laughs> The pelican, the white pelicans, the first time I had what I would call a conversation with with the, with the bird was one was coming. I don't know. It's about half my size, like it was a big male coming for my lunch. It was a picnic outdoors, and um, I stood up and started doing the neck movements and going, ah! <laughs> and it just backed <laughs> off. <laughs> so I kind of like, so, oh, I so you of, speak pelican. I, 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 well, I didn't think I did, but it certainly got the message. So I didn't actually have to throw it like be all too awful to it. But I just, I did kind of use language, I suppose. <laughs> and it, um, it backed off and left me alone. But I, 
do, I, I don't know if you did this while later, but using the body language of the bird as much as a human can, um, it did seem to recognize something of what was you going know, on. In Golden Gate Park, it was when I was probably, it was two years ago, I would say, because I was following this family of great horned owls and every twice a year they had babies. And I remember once uh, I was uh, talking to the mother, mother owl, and I knew it was a mother because great horned owls, female owls are much bigger than male owls. And she was sitting on a branch and I was photographing her and filming for a few hours. And at some point I, I was there by myself. So I felt like I wanted to have a conversation while there's this being looking at me. And so I'm thinking, well, we can talk. And I thought, well, there's nobody around. I didn't think at that time. So I thought maybe, you know, if I'm crazy, nobody will know. So I can give it a try. And the owl hooted and then kind of looked around and I was still sitting, but looking right at me. So I hooted back and the owl yeah. looked at me and while looking at me, it hooted back at me. So I thought, <laughs> oh, we, we can talk. I have no idea what, you know, she was saying. Do you think it was offering a critique of your, of your uh, probably. accent? She probably was wondering, <laughs> like, oh, what kind of accent do you have? That might be like a bit <laughs> now. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I thought, oh, that that's pretty amazing. Actually, I had it I, because I had my camera set on a tripod. I, I, I have it documented, so it was recorded. But I thought it's true, it's true. You know? So I was really happy that I tried it. Not you know, not worrying too much about being crazy bird. Well, at that time I didn't know about the podcast, but it was very appropriate. But Sophie, there's yeah. another thing about we're talking about places and then how we are interested in exploring places and learning more and. Very often places, when you start digging into their history, they reveal so much and not necessarily yeah. something that we would uh, expect. But now I'm thinking, especially now with the lockdown situation and pandemic and being stuck at home, I'm curious what you think about places when we think about our indoor places. Because to me, I, I was thinking when you were reading your essay, I was thinking that in a way we are now forced to readapt to our homes and i almost feel like i have to learn like i'm discovering my living spaces because i never spent so much time at home and also i have yeah. to because we are working from home so i have to readapt my space to working but i feel that suddenly i'm seeing my living space very differently i don't i mean i think i've always actually really liked the indoor space um and actually a bit like your situation in Savannah, it can get, get very hot here in summer. So you do actually spend time indoors and kind of, and in, and indeed when it gets cold in winter. So I've always actually felt quite a connection with the indoor space. But what I am finding is I'm getting really missing outdoors. Like I am missing going outdoors so much. And it's one of the reasons why, despite the fact we were going to meet at eight, I made sure I went out for an hour because otherwise you I start to feel disconnected from the world in a way that is really unpleasant. If I don't get outside, I happen to live in an area where there are lots of old parks. I live in the centre of the, of the city. I'm not total centre, but close enough that there are lots of um, quite old parks, like 150-year-old parks or whatever. So I can get to trees and, and grass. And it does, I think it's the only, it's got me through in a way. But I also do like walking streets as well and seeing street trees and you get the magpies and bird. birds are actually more important to me during this period than they normally are because um, 
you know, they, they hang out in city spaces as well. They don't just disappear, you know, in, in the way that you don't see kangaroos around city spaces, but you do you do certainly see birds. Um, th- there's a, some pe- um, peregrine, I'm going to say peregrine falcons um, nesting at the moment on a building in Melbourne that's on the li- on live cam and three days in a row, she, row she's laid an egg and they're um you know a lot of people on lockdown are watching her, her <laughs> endeavor um i've watched her and she's been there well i don't know if it's exactly always the same pair that returns but the, the nesting box is used each year and i watched three years ago but it's a bit rough because not all the chicks make it and i think i decided that i mean it's great that you, you if, if you hang in there, you have the moment of seeing, I did see this once where the, the mother literally pushes the, the healthy, fully fledged chick like off the edge of the building. It's a bit like you could see it standing there like, oh, this is, oh, I'm not sure about this. This is really, and she just like went <laughs> and pushed him off. And obviously the chick or, you know, the young falcon just, or then instinct kicks in and it, can, it starts to figure out how to fly. But it had that almost human sense of like you could see it standing on the precipice going, I, I really understand. You just want to call situation. the animal services. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, that said, to get to that moment, we'd had to watch a couple of, because of the poisons that are left out for pigeons and their various, um, so you, we had to watch a couple of the chicks um, die soon after they were hatched. So I'm not sure that I'm going to watch mm-hmm the live cam this year i'm not sure that i've got the got the stomach for it that's tough but also and you know i'm not a writer so i i don't know but i would assume that as a writer you actually spend a lot of time indoors or maybe yeah probably writing yeah. so and certainly physically constrained i and um in a way, that's been one of my experiences of lockdown is a sense of physical constraint that I'm finding a bit hard to deal with because, yes, as a writer, I did always sit at my desk and write, but I didn't do that for eight hours a day without moving. Um, whereas now that's happening a bit more. I'm having to work from my bedroom a lot um, because my partner and I are having to share. We don't have an office space for everyone and it's all a bit difficult. It's very physically constraining and this has been happening in Australia since January because we had to stay indoors because the smoke um, the bushfire smoke was so extreme that it wasn't safe to be outdoors either so we've actually been indoors for the whole year it will take about four weeks at the beginning of winter and it's um, it is difficult and that um, and it's about that disconnect from when I say the natural world, I don't mean wild nature, but just any outdoor space is really um, it's not good for for mental health. I don't think people are really really struggling because it is so important to have. And that is about sound as well. And that's when I spent time in Bloomington. I was really struck by how I used I like hearing birds at dawn and those kind of things. It's one of the things that wakes me up and not and having needing to keep the windows down because of heating was on or the windows down because there was so much very loud air conditioning units around me um, was just very unusual for me and being cut from outdoor sounds I found quite disconcerting because in it's not as temperatures aren't as extreme here despite me having sort of talked about the heat of summer so we can have windows open and hear sounds and that kind of stuff 
I have a question about your writing. Might be a bit silly question to you, but very often when we talk now to uh, to artists, people who professionally are involved in some sort of creative activity, there are different opinions. And uh, very often we hear that because of the situation right now, because of being on a lockdown or being separated from the from the environment in a way that is so new to everybody, it's very difficult to not just focus, but to get into that space, it, or at least it takes much longer into that space where you can really focus on your work. And I, I'm just curious for you, is, is writing any different right now, the way you work right now? It's totally different. Um, I have done a lot more paid work, like I've taken jobs this year as opposed to just working on my own novels or whatever because I have felt quite uncreative. And I don't mean that, that nothing creative comes from paid work because, in fact, I've done like Tippy and Jelly being the kids' book you mentioned that's about um, koala escaping bushfire. I loved doing that, but it wasn't my idea. I've been working on a collection of essays, not written by me, written by writers around Australia called um, Fire, Fire, Flood, Play, because we've also had floods here. Um, and that's been really interesting. So I've done very interesting work, but I've sort of needed someone to motivate me. Or, like it's been hard to motivate myself in the same way. So while I end up doing good work, I'm sort of needing a bit of a push along. I have one of the things I would say, City of Trees is about the sense that the world as we know it is changing and we've reached a tipping point and it is, um, it's, I'm finding it very hard to think about the big picture at the moment because I, my personal view is that there's going to be more and more weather events, pandemics. This is, these events are things I've been writing about for some years and you often think what would it feel like to be in a period of rapid collapse is too strong a word but rapid change and I think we're in it and it's it is rough and just trying to get keep some equilibrium through that and keep a connection to nature which doesn't get freaked out by the fact that it's not pure nature like any nature frankly is good any kind of engagement with streetscapes with parks I don't obsess about the fact, oh, it wasn't like this originally. I just sort of take real pleasure in whatever I can, parts of the natural world are still presenting themselves to me. And I think we have to learn to do that rather than have this kind of purist approach to, you know, what things were like because things are going to change for a whole lot of reasons. Which a lot of us, I think, struggle with that. It's not that easy to just... I think a lot of us are still in that maybe shock phase. We think that yeah, eventually no. we'll go back to normal but there was yeah. no normal anyway or it will go back to the same but probably won't be the same uh, the, the writer bill american writer bill mckibben has talked about this and they're australian writers i mean i think that um if the temperatures rise they've already risen close 1.5 degrees they're definitely heading for two if they get to three or four it's really certainly safer areas like louisiana like devastating, that, that the hurricane and Florida, some um, parts of the United States and equivalent areas in Australia are just going to be um, transformed beyond recognition. And um, you can argue with it all you like and you can say that that's a political point of view, but it will happen anyway. Like the arguments will happen <laughs> at the same time as we lose. 
um, cities and coastal regions. It's just, you know, it's happening now. You, uh, writing is your main thing, I'm going to say. Yeah. But could you tell us a little bit about your tree project? Because I follow that my, on oh, Instagram my... and it's yes, not a typical writing project. Yes, so I, I'm curious about yes, it. No. And I always love, I just love it. I love those photos. Okay, well, I am interested in the visual arts. I mean, as a as a looker, as a looker of pet things, like I love the visual arts, and I am trying to teach myself how to do some visual arts painting or whatever. But um, with it was actually in San Francisco I, that triggered that kind of that particular project because there's so many eucalypts, there's so many Australian trees in the um, Bay Area, and that was slightly disconcerting feeling. And so I started taking lots of photographs and putting them on, on Facebook and Instagram. And then it was actually someone said to me politely, perhaps you need a special account for that, which I took to be a polite way of them saying, can you, I personally do not want to continue to have to look at endless tree photos. But um, so I set up a separate Instagram account called Sofe Tree of Day, which I've been posting at one or sometimes a series of photos every day for about four years now. Maybe it's five years. I don't know. I've lost track. And at first it was trees I had seen. Um, and in these recent, then during the pandemic, during the lockdown, I got people to send me photos of um, trees from around the world. We did a country, I would say every country in the world. We didn't actually manage to do every country in the world, but we certainly did hundreds. Um, and so that was other people's photos mainly. And at the moment, the current project is that um, people send photos of trees within 5Ks because we're not allowed to go more than 5Ks from where we are at the moment. So people are sending their favourite trees that they see around them. And one of the things that's been a real pleasure is how into trees people get and the kind of um, not just the images they send me but the emails and the messages they send with them. But one that was amazingly moving in January this year was during the fires, someone from a, a massive old property up um, about five hours north of where I live, uh, sent a series of photos that their parents had taken of a tree that was hundreds of years old that they'd actually directed the fire service to save the tree rather than the buildings um, because to keep it. And that they were amazing photos. So you kind of, that sense that even by showing an image, five, you know, a, a tree being threatened by fire, there's sort of so much, often so much meaning and so many stories and so I've been loving sharing sharing those with people. It keeps it's, it's when I talked before about finding equilibrium in a time of change. I think that Instagram account is one of the ways that I, I try and do it and remind ourselves that there is a lot of beauty. Do you think that that there. project might turn into writing eventually? Well, it ha it became that's a, in a way that's what City of Trees. I mean, it, it couldn't become. It's too different a thing to become writing. But I'm going to continue to write about trees. But in a way, the point of that project is that it's just an image. I don't – I've just told you the story about the history of the tree or whatever. But I don't do that when I post a photo every day. Part of the point of it is just to kind of say, isn't this lovely? It's <laughs> a beautiful tree without necessarily layering, making it as heavy-handed as with writing. I go into the history and cultural stuff and I love doing that. But I also think there's a pleasure in just – looking at images and enjoying them without making forcing people to kind of deal with all of those complexities well i can't speak for all issues. the viewers and you know all the followers of your tree project but even if it wasn't your intent i 
find some trees so beautiful or it's just I, some trees I have never seen in my life. And when, yeah. if there is a name of the tree there, I actually do more research. So I, I yes. dig deeper. So you don't have to do it for yes, me, I but do. I do it. I do. If I Sometimes I don't know. And the thing about eucalyptus, I realise we have to, well, I have to wrap up and I see you have to wrap up, but eucalyptus, there are hundreds of different types and there's a whole history to the naming of Australian trees, which is they had to get permission from the English government, I mean, the botany society to actually give trees names for, like, took about 50 years to get permission because Joseph Banks was busy doing other things and so there's different names and then it took it's only, I think, in the 80s I started saying this tree, species of tree, actually appears to have two or three different names because it's been really confusing about the naming. So there's there's been a reclassification of eucalyptus as well. And they also look very different when they're young to when they're old, like the juvenile forms. So they're very hard. So I kind of, I can name trees that are around me, like Victoria, but there's no way you can keep the 800 species in your head. So that's why I don't always name them while they're because I just sometimes I have no idea what I'm looking at. <laughs> I think I saw some photos from Savannah, but we have this very, you know, particular tree here. So maybe I'll take a photo and send it your your way. I would love that. You know, I haven't <laughs> seen photos. Uh, I, I took photo, photos in Louisiana when I was there. There's a very special uh, tree on that here. So Yeah, yeah. Um, so that would have looked like some of the trees so, I think you get there. I never got to Savannah and I really wanted to, but no, um, I did spend my honeymoon in um, Louisiana and Florida. So when, you know, when a lockdown is no longer a reality and if it's uh, safe yeah. uh, to travel, please come and visit Savannah. I'll be happy to be a tour guide. And, okay, and be, great. I wanted to ask you, could you share with our listeners where they can uh, find your work? Um, well, I know that American friends have ordered Tippy and Jelly Bean. To be honest, I don't even know where they've done it. I just know that people, women, in fact, people like Gardeners and Alcatraz have got um, that book's doing very well. The book about koalas and bushfires, because maybe because it's for kids. So I think online is Googling. Okay. It's, it, I have to be honest and maybe if when you um how I'm not quite sure how you let people know about this podcast you could put um link them to my Instagram feed or whatever and I can always answer DMs and let people know but the books aren't hard copies of the books aren't available in America unless you order them we will definitely share the links we always do that on our website okay so we will do that Great. thank you so much Sophie it's been a true Thanks pleasure to chat with you and thank you for, and best of luck with the lockdown. Yeah, thanks. It's almost over. Okay. We'll be fine. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I'll see you in Savannah, I hope, next time. Yes. Okay. okay. See ya. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Crazy Bird Podcast. The Crazy Bird Podcast is hosted by Violeta Kaminska and Matt Van Rice. Our guest for this episode was Sophie Cunningham. You can learn more about Sophie's project, Tree of Day, on Instagram at Day. Her book, City of Trees, Essays on Life, Death, and the Need for a Forest, is available on Amazon. Our theme music is inspired by Tambourine by French composer 
François-Joseph Gossec. The improvisation is performed by Agnieszka Kowalik. The nature recordings were recorded by Violeta Kaminska. This episode was edited and produced by Violeta Kaminska.